0: Grab a Bible, if there's one close by, we're going to look up some passages tonight as we talk about some different things, and there's outlines at the front and the back, and in addition to the outline, there's sort of a flow chart, I gave you this last week and just sort of gave it to you in advance so you could look at it and think about it and read through it, Uh, we're going to trace a few things through this in just a minute, Um, it's somewhat helpful, I told you last week when we started that last week's lesson, and this week's lesson, and next week's lesson, all three of those really kind of go together. And ideally, um, we could talk about all of those things sort of in one Sunday, or one Wednesday, excuse me, and that would help tie them all together a little bit. Uh, but for time's sake, we can't do that, and I don't want to try to rush and leave important things out. And so we're just we're breaking it up over three weeks, um, which means tonight, if you weren't here last week, you're kind of jumping in in the middle of a thought, at least in my brain, but I'm going to try to review a little bit so you kind of know the ground rules and, and the basics of what we went over last week. And then next week, we'll tie more of this together uh, next week will be a little bit more practical in comparing what we see tonight as the evangelical Christian worldview compared to some other worldviews that you rub shoulders with on a daily basis. So I'm not, we're not going to spend a night comparing uh, and contrasting Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam because where we live, we just don't interact with those worldviews a whole lot. Every now and then we might, or if you go on a mission trip, you might, but day to day... Um, We interact with, we'll just say, Catholics, and for lack of a better term, liberal Protestants. We interact with those worldviews much more than some of the more exotic stripes, and we need to know how to interact with those folks. And talk to them. And so that's going to be next week. But tonight we're still talking about worldview. And specifically, last week was worldview. In general, this week is specifically our worldview. And so one of the things I told you last week is that your worldview, think of it as a pair of glasses or think of it as a window. And you're looking through the glasses. You're looking through the window to see the world out there. Okay? The world is out there. Reality is out there. Right? We're not saying that Matt can have his version of reality, and Jerry can have his version, and Corey can have his version, and they're all good. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there is reality out there that we're looking at. We're just looking at it through different lenses, and the lenses that you wear to look at it are going to color the way that you see what's out there. And sometimes a person may come to the point where they realize my worldview, the lenses I'm using to look at reality are not helping me see truth. And I need to take those lenses off and I need to put a true, true worldview on to help me understand things. So this handout, we talked about this last week. The gray boxes are questions. You ask yourself a question and you go to your answer. The answers are in yellow. Yes, no, I don't care, I don't know. And then you just follow the arrows and you keep asking questions until you get to a red box, and the red box says, well, that's your worldview. And then you notice some of these red boxes go on to other questions, meaning you can have kind of combinations of these different worldviews. And we're going to trace uh, here in a minute the naturalist worldview. How do we get from does God exist down to that box that says naturalist, naturalist in it? I talked to you last week about a guy named James Sire. Okay? I told you this is the most helpful guy that I've read on the issue of worldview. He's a philosophy professor. He looks like a philosophy professor. And a lot of what we're talking about comes from this book called The Universe Next Door. And in that book, he breaks down eight worldview questions. And I gave these to you last week. If you weren't here and you want the handout all the old handouts are up here at the front, but here's the eight worldview questions. And what Sire says is everybody's worldview, everybody has a pair of these glasses on that they look through to see reality. Everyone's worldview has to give you some answer to these basic questions. What is prime reality? What is really ultimately real? What is the nature of external reality, the world around us? How do you explain the physical world that we interact with? What is a human being? How do you define a person? What happens to a person when they die? Why is it possible to know anything at all? We're going to talk about that tonight and a lot next week because that might be one of the most influential questions of all of them up here. How do you know what you know? What's your authority? How do you know what's right and wrong? That's the question of ethics. What's the meaning of human history? Where are things going? What's happening here? How do we make sense of life? And then the last question, number eight, what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? And that last question, he's actually added in recent editions of his book, He used to have seven questions, and now he has eight. And that last one is basically him saying part of your worldview is how you actually live. If you believe these other seven things, then how does that affect the way you live in the world and the way you think and the way you interact with people? So those are the the basic worldview questions. And I'm going to talk about this at the end, but let me just say it up front, a little application up front and a little at the end. This is why this matters, okay? You're a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and one of the things we think is very important at our church is missions. Giving to missions, supporting missionaries, going on mission trips. Right? We took 43 people to Kenya last year. We've got about 27, 28, almost 30 signed up for mission trips this summer. We have another group of about eight going to Kenya in February for planning. So we like to go on mission trips. And we think that's important, to go make disciples of all nations. And we talked about this Box, and here's the danger when you're a church like us and you're going on a short-term mission trip, right? you got one, maybe two weeks dealing with people. The danger is that you go into their world, into their country, into their experience of life, and you maybe try to change the way they behave or the things that they value or what they believe, but their basic worldview underneath stays intact. So for us, it might look like we go to Kenya and we go and we meet these people and we don't talk about any of these basic issues, but we just say, hey, there's a guy named Jesus and he loves you and he wants to be part of your life. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ into your life? And they're going to hear that and say, sure, why not? And we're going to say, "That was easy. They're so open to the gospel. They just want to receive Jesus. Nobody does that in the United States. That's the great, we're excited. And then we go home, and then our pastor friends over there send us Facebook messages, and they say, my church members keep going to the witch doctor every time they get sick. Go to the witch doctor? They accepted Jesus. Why would you go to the witch doctor? Christians don't believe in witch doctors. And the problem is you've changed this level of belief, but you haven't touched their underlying worldview, all those eight questions that we just talked about. You just sort of tacked on Jesus to the outside of that. That is not what we want to do. You have to be very careful that you don't do that. Some of you say, well, okay, that's great. That's Kenya. But I'm not at a stage of life or position of life where I feel like I'm going to go to Kenya. So what does this have to do with me here? What it has to do with us here in the United States is you live in a place where the vast majority, especially because you live in the South, the vast majority of people, when just polled for a survey and they say, what is your religious affiliation, will say, I'm a Christian. They will pay external lip service to Jesus and Christianity, and that's how they will identify. But when you talk to them and you engage them on a worldview level, I promise even here in the Bible Belt you will find they don't have biblical answers to those eight questions that James Sire gives us. They say, I love Jesus, but their underlying worldview is completely estranged from the biblical worldview. And what are you going to say to those people who fill out the survey and say, I'm a Christian? Like, you're going to go tell them you need to accept Jesus? Because do you know what they're going to say when you say that? Done. I'm a Christian. I checked the Christian box on the form. What more do you want from me? And if all you have for somebody is you need Jesus in your life, well, fine. I'll have him in my life. Easy. And nothing changes in their life. The way they think, the way they believe, the way they live, the way they act, the way they treat other people, nothing changes because you haven't touched the core of who they are, which is their worldview. Okay. So one of the things I like about sire, this is the first thing on your outline. He gives us a worldview test, four criteria for evaluating somebody's worldview. How do they answer these questions? And then he gives us this test to see if their answers are good or not. And I'll promise you this, the only worldview that passes all four of these tests is the one we're going to talk about tonight. The only one. You can study any other worldview you want to study and listen to how they answer those eight questions and then grade them with these criteria they don't measure up. Not even close. So here's his four-fold test. Test number one, your worldview has to be intellectually coherent. It has to hold together and be consistent. You can't have contradictions within the things that you hold tightly in your worldview, okay? So throughout the night, I'm going to do a lot of picking on naturalism. Naturalism, without giving you a big philosophical discourse on it, we're just going to say this is the typical Liberal university biology professor. Okay? Evolution, there is no God. I can explain everything with just natural causes. There's nothing supernatural, just the physical world. Naturalism. The natural world is all there is. Okay? Naturalism is going to say to you, and this is a problem because it's not coherent, it's not consistent. Naturalism is going to say, We live in a closed system. There can be no external influence from deities, gods, goddesses, spirits. It's all physical causes and it's closed. And we're just stuck here with a chain reaction of one chemical interacting with another and it's just closed. And we're determined. There's nothing you can do to slow it down or change it. They're going to tell you that in your biology class. It's just this process and it grinds out and it's slow and you can't stop it. And then those same guys are going to turn around and they're going to be the ones that tell you we need to save the earth, we need to stop global warming, we can change gender, we can do all these different things, and we can have influence over this process. And you say, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's determined and it's all chemical reactions and there's nothing we can do, but then turn around and pretend like we can change things and improve things. It's not coherent. Those two ideas just butt up against each other. So you can't hold to two ideas in your worldview that don't fit together. It's got to be intellectually coherent. Secondly, it must comprehend the data of reality. You've got to comprehend and make sense of the data of reality. I'll give you a silly example and a real example. If somebody could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that ghosts were real, we're going to come back to that idea later, but if you could prove ghosts are real, your worldview has to have a way to explain that. You can't just look at things that we know and say, just pretend it's not there. So if something's real and we experience it and we know it, you've got to be able to explain that in some way. The Christian worldview can explain anything that you experience in life. You may not like the explanation, but it can explain it. Okay. On the flip side of that, if somebody can make a convincing argument that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead, and I think you can make that argument. You read books by guys like Lee Strobel. I think that it's a slam dunk. To prove that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person and he really rose from the dead. I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yes, because the Bible tells me. And also because I think you can just figure it out historically and logically and making sense of it. If that really happened, you have to explain that to me. And the naturalist says, dead things don't come back to life. But if it happened, you have to have an explanation for that. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. So you've got to comprehend the data of reality. Number three, you have to explain what you actually claim to explain. Your explanations have to be convincing. Okay, so let's go back to our naturalist biology professor. This guy is going to take a trip to Paris, and he's going to see these young people sitting by the river and lounging out by the Eiffel Tower and they're dreamy-eyed and staring at each other and they're in love and it's so romantic. And he's going to look at those people and he's going to say, you, love is not really a thing. You're just, you have chemicals in your brain firing and synapses going off. And when you say to that girl, I love you, that doesn't really mean anything. All that's really happening in your brain is chemical reactions that make you think you're feeling that, experiencing that. That's his explanation. I don't think that's convincing. When you think about the people in your life that you love and that you care about and that you're deeply connected to, I don't think it's a good explanation to say that's just chemicals in your brain going off. And it's just a determined thing. I don't buy that. And I don't think most people buy that. Even people who buy into the naturalistic worldview, when they fall in love with somebody, they don't write them a Valentine card that says, you really make my chemicals in my brain go crazy. You just make my brain synapses fire on all cylinders. It's amazing, the chemistry. They, I love you. They, they, just, they say it because they feel it. So you've got to be able to explain that. Lastly, it has to be subjectively satisfactory, meaning when you listen to the, all the answers to the questions, you kind of got to be able to say, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds right. That makes sense of things. I'll give you an example of what this would not look like. Many Eastern worldviews, like the Buddhist worldview, would say to you, suffering is not a real thing. It's not real. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, uh, relational suffering is just an illusion and what you need to do is convince yourself that it's not real. When you figure out it's not real, you'll be done with it. Well, I don't, just don't think that really brings a lot of satisfaction to anybody who is suffering. What you're going through is not real. Just convince yourself it's not real. I just don't think that passes the mustard. So there's his worldview criteria, Okay. We're going to talk tonight about the one worldview that passes all those tests, the evangelical Christian worldview. And I want to give you one disclaimer, okay? I know because it's an election season and we're right up on the heat of it right now. You've heard the word evangelical and you've seen it on Facebook and they've talked about us on the news and you've heard that word tossed around. And I'm just going to tell you honestly... Politics in the United States has just about ruined the real meaning of evangelical to where it really doesn't mean anything when they throw that word around anymore. Okay, so when I say we're going to talk about the evangelical worldview, just take your brain and flush out anything that has to do with politics in the United States. Okay, we're not talking about any of that stuff. The classic definition or sort of an original definition of evangelicalism would be to say... This is a movement of people who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible's true. They believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he's the only way a person can be saved. They believe that salvation is not by works, but it's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something that you can earn. And they have this impulse within them to take the gospel to other people, right? Right? to go out and to do missions and evangelism and talk about the things we're talking about on this Wednesday night study. And the word evangelical comes from the Greek word that means good news, euangelion, gospel. And it's saying these are gospel people. These are people who believe the gospel and want to preach the gospel. That's sort of the idea that we're talking about. And when we take what we discussed tonight, the evangelical worldview, and next week we compare it to a liberal Protestant worldview or a Catholic worldview, you'll realize they're, they're miles and miles and miles apart. They have very few things in common at the end of the day. So we're going to look at the eight questions of a worldview, and I'm going to give you the answers from us for an evangelical Christian. Okay? And again, I'm going to use naturalism as a foil throughout the night. So when you look at this, this little chart, you start up on the left and it says, God exists. If you go to no, or I don't care, or I don't know, you go to atheist, apatheist, or agnostic. And all of those can end up back at this next question that says, where do you find meaning? Do you find meaning in the world? And if you say, yes, there is some meaning to life, What we're doing here is not just totally pointless, but there is meaning. Then you go down and you say, okay, do you find it in experience? No, I don't find it in just experience and doing things. Do you find it in humanity and mankind? If you say, no, I don't find it in mankind, you say, do you find it in nature, in the physical world? And you say, yes, you end up as a naturalist. And that's going to be sort of the foil that we talk about Tonight, Somebody who says the physical world is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. What you can see, what we can touch, what we can experience physically is all there is. Your soul is not a real thing. It's just synapses firing in your brain. Gods and goddesses, the high God of Christianity, Baal... Zeus, all of them, they're just imaginary. They are not real. There's nobody up there. It's just space, and the physical world is all there is. That's going to be our foil tonight, okay? So question one, what is prime reality? What is really real? And we would say this, prime reality is the infinite personal God revealed in the Holy Scriptures. This God is triune, transcendent, and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. And I know that's a lot of blanks, so I'm going to let you write them down. And then we're going to talk about a few of these. Infinite, personal, triune, transcendent and imminent, omniscient, sovereign and good. When you get those down, I would like you to turn to Exodus three. Exodus three verse fourteen. This is the story of God appearing to Moses at the burning bush. You know this story. In Exodus three, fourteen. Moses says to God, if I go back to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I define myself, and I can't be put into any of your categories. I am the one who just simply exists. I was never created. I was never made. I never had a beginning. I will not have an end. I just am I am what is really, ultimately real. And I was discussing a story from the book of Exodus with a group of guys recently, and we were having trouble wrapping our arms around it. It's a, it's a story in Exodus 32. You can look at it later. You just sort of struggle to make sense of it. And at the end of the you know, discussion, you just kind of have to humble yourself and say, you can't wrap your arms around God. He's infinite. He's the great I am. He's the one who just simply is. You can't figure that out completely and totally because you're the creature and he's the creator. You can know true things about him. You can understand what's real about him, but you're never going to be able to comprehend all of him because he is who he is. As he told Moses, he's infinite beyond our comprehension. He's personal, okay? So... In Star Wars. I know some of you love Star Wars. Star Wars is okay. The idea of Star Wars is like there's this force out there, right? And it's just this thing. It's just kind of can be good, it can be bad, it's just sort of out there, it's just there. And you don't like, you're not personal with it, it's just the force, right? It's not a he or a she, it's just the thing, the force, the it. And the biblical God is not that. He's not just some blind force, but he's a personal God who relates to his people. He's a trinity of people. He's triune. Okay? The scriptures reveal him as triune, meaning part of who he is involves relating to others, father, son, and spirit from all eternity relating to each other. When he created us, he didn't create us because he was lonely, because he exists within this community of three. One, Deuteronomy 6, there is only one God, but he exists as three persons. So we believe that he's triune. He's transcendent. Okay? This is Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. You're different than us. You're not down on our level. You're a, a being all to yourself. But he's also imminent. He's with us. You can't get away from him. Psalm 139, where am I going to go to get away from you? The highest heavens, the ends of the earth, where the sun sets. I can't get away from you. You're everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's sovereign. He can do absolutely anything that he wants to do. And he is good. That's what we would say is prime reality. The really real thing. The only thing that wasn't created that just simply was. Okay, You understand, you ask this question to your biology professor, Mr. Naturalist, and you say, what is really real? His answer is going to be, what is really real is dirt and chemicals and the periodic table and all the elements and the stuff. And it just, it started, it was all there, and there was one day just this bang, and here we are. And you push back on him if you want to address him on a worldview level. Because he's going to laugh at this definition of what you think is real, right? He's going to laugh at you. So get your big boy pants on and let him laugh at you. And then you just say, but where did that stuff come from? And he's going to start talking to you, well, you know, evolution and Darwin and all these things. You're going to say, no, 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 no. I'm not saying how did we get to where we're at today. I'm saying where did it all come from? And his answer at the end of the day is it just always existed. Just the physical building blocks were always there. And I say, is that intellectually satisfying to you, that dirt just made itself, that dirt is eternal? I, that, doesn't, that doesn't pass the worldview test to me. It doesn't pass the criteria. It doesn't explain what it actually claims to explain. Inanimate stuff doesn't just create itself, and it doesn't just go bang for no reason. It doesn't pass a worldview test. So this, that's our answer to question one. Question two. What is the nature of external reality, the world around us? We would say external reality is the cosmos that God created, ex nihilo, Latin phrase meaning out of nothing, to operate within a uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. And I'll explain to you what we mean by all those terms Jot those three down and then take your Bible and look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe the universe, everything that exists, anything that you can see in a telescope or look at under a microscope. The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, meaning the God who when you open the Bible, Genesis 1, there's no explanation given to his origins because he just was. He's the great I am. He always has been, is now, and always will be. He made everything out of, things unseen out of nothing he just spoke it into existence we believe that he created ex nihilo and the world operates in a uniformity of cause and effect meaning you take the apple you hold it out you let it go 10 times out of 10 it's going to do what it's going to go down you know that you you didn't sit down tonight and then think i wonder if i'm going to float away in the middle of bible study tonight just start going <laughs> I wonder if the, tonight could be the night. I just, that'd be so embarrassing. I'm the only one to just start, you don't think, you know, you sit down, you stay, you sit down till you get up, you sit down. Uniformity. We know things happen that way. You understand this Christian worldview that believes that is a foundation for modern science of people saying, we can study things, we can figure things out because they happen the same way over and over and we can come up with a theory and we can see if it works and we can test it. And if our theory's wrong, we adjust it and... We learn things. It's a uniformity, cause and effect. It's not chaotic. When we say an open system... As evangelicals, what we're saying is there is still a God up there. And at any point he wants to sort of reach down into this world he made and do something, he can do it. Like if he wants to reach down and part an ocean for his people to walk through, he can do that. Or if he wants to not just reach down with his hands and move the water over, but if he wants to be the one that sends a strong wind that blows all night, that piles the water up in a heap, he can do that too. It's an open system. It's not closed to outside influences, God can intervene in it. So I'll give you an example of this. This summer, my family went up to Amarillo, and we went to one of my favorite places. I should have put a picture up here. We went to Palo Dura Canyon, and we go hiking around. And we went to the little visitor center, and they got the little guide in there, or park ranger guy or whatever, and all these little sort of museum displays, and you read them, and you talk to the guy, and they just say, it's just, it's just millions of years. Just been sitting here, and we've just been one drop at a time, one grain of sand at a time. And you say, is it possible that there was any outside influence in that? And the naturalist says, no, 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 no. It cannot be any outside influence. It's just got to be what we can observe and what we can see. And so you get this theory, you go to the Grand Canyon or Palo Duro Canyon, and they say, well, this, you know, this canyon took... X billion number of years to happen. And here's what's crazy. Remember one of the worldview tests? Does it actually explain what it claims to explain? Recent scientists who are a little bit honest and have some integrity have looked at it and said, the math doesn't work. You can give it all the time you want. You're not going to get a canyon like this. You can give it all the time in the world, and it's not going to happen. And they end up saying there had to be some sort of catastrophe. It's called catastrophism. There had to be something that we can't account for that happened, some big catastrophe that sped up the processes a little bit, or you can't get what you've got today. And as Christians, we say, duh. We know all about that. We can tell you all about it. But the naturalist worldview says, no, you can't have any outside influence of any kind. And so here's another explanation, okay? You can't have any outside influence. And the honest, the really smart guys like Stephen Hawking and some of these crazy smart guys that are so intelligent, it's unbelievable – they can come up with all these theories, but you push them back onto origins and you say, forget all the explanations of evolution and billions of years and Big Bangs and all this stuff. Go back to origins. Where did all that stuff come from? Explain it to me. Where did the physical reality come from? Do you know what a lot of those guys are saying these days? Aliens. <laughs> I mean, they're not laughing about it because they realize they're not stupid guys, right? Right? They realize it had to come from somewhere. It can't just come from nowhere. It's not intellectually satisfying to say all these atoms just always were and they came from nowhere on their own. There was nothing, then there was something. Without a creator, it doesn't make any sense. So they say, well, maybe, maybe there's somebody outside of us who came and started it all here, and that was the beginning. All they've done is push the problem back one more step. Where did those guys come from? Well... That's a good question. So the naturalist on question two is going to say, what's the nature of external reality? They're going to say, what you experience and what you see is all there is. There's nothing else unseen. There's no spirit realm. There's no deities. Just what you can see, and we have a different answer than that. Question three, what is a human being? This is the longest answer, I think. And it's really a two-part answer, okay? And you've got to have both parts for that. Evangelical Christian worldview. Human beings are created in the image of God. So that means we have personality, self-transcendence, intelligence, morality, gregariousness. Should have made you write that word down. That's a great word. Gregariousness and creativity. Human beings were created good, but through the fall, the image of God became defaced. Though not so ruined as to be capable of restoration... Through the work of Christ, God provided redemption for humanity. So I know that's a lot I gave you to fill in, but I'm having you fill in some of the key words here. What is a human being? The way you answer this question determines the way you treat people, the way you treat vulnerable people, the way you treat powerful people, the way you think about life, the way you think about death. And we have really heated debates in this country between people who all say they believe in a God because we have very different answers to this question. At the end of the day, we answer the question differently. So let's talk about a few of these things. Genesis one twenty seven. just the most basic fundamental passage on this issue it says that God created a man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them he made people humans in his image and he made them male and female that's how he made us So this first blank that you filled in that says the image of God, it gets explained by everything else that follows. That means we have personality, meaning no two of you are exactly the same. You're unique. You have a personality all to yourself. And some of you we wish we could clone, and some of you we say one's enough. But you're all unique. There's only one of you. Self-transcendence means that you can think. That's a a smart guy's way of saying you can think about things and you can reason about things and you wonder about things. And when you look at that cow out in the field, he's not sitting out there wondering where I came from. He's just thinking about grass or the rattlesnake on the ground. or He's not pondering the meaning of life. Cows don't write worldview books. People write worldview books because we have self-transcendence. Intelligence, we can learn things, we can study things. Morality. We have a sense of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis argues that's one of the, the fact that all people have a sense of morality. He said we disagree on right and wrong, but we all have a sense of right and wrong. He says it's proof that there's a God, and he reasons it very brilliantly. And uh, so we have this this sense of morality. Gregariousness. We make connections with people. We have relationships. We talk to people. We interact with people. Um, Technology is kind of, damaging that in our society, but we still do it. Creativity. We make things. We build things. And, you know, the naturalist would say, well, termites build things. My goodness, when you go to Kenya and you see these termite towers that are, they build impressive things and ants build things. Eh, they, they do build things. They're created by the same creator that made us. So they make things. That shouldn't be surprising. You can talk about the greatness of ants and termites and all you want. There's a difference between a a termite tower and the World Trade Center. There's a difference. Creativity. Um, Here's something just to think about, okay? Comparing and contrasting these worldviews. We got to hurry up here. We're running out of time. A lot of modern artists today would identify sort of under the naturalist worldview. And if you just you want to be shocked by some stuff, just Google modern art and you'll find the most ridiculous stuff you've ever seen. You'll find some really cool stuff. You'll find some stuff that's just so crazy. And these artists will say there is no God and we get to create meaning and there's no one out there and it's just us. And the physical world is all there is and we get to determine right and wrong and truth and beauty and all these things, we have the power to control them and shape them. And they do all of these things and they make all of these things and they enjoy them and they they say this is good and this is bad and this is beautiful and this is not. And they enjoy art. They enjoy making it, right? But the naturalistic worldview says, you know, that feeling of enjoyment you have right now, it's it's really nothing. It's just your brain firing. And the, the things you think that are good or bad, it's, I mean, they're really not. They're just there, and that's just your brain sort of subjectively, chemicals going off and telling you. That doesn't make sense. Those artists say, no, 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 no. This really is good, and that really is bad. When they make those sorts of judgment, they're borrowing from our worldview to make those judgments. They don't have any basis for saying something is good or bad. It just is. So Creativity add to the image of God stuff, human beings were created good, we believe there was a fall, and the image of God became defaced, meaning we're not who God originally made us to be, but the image of God is not lost. And I'll just give you some verses to jot down for the sake of time. Look at Genesis 9.6 and James 3.9. Both of those passages come after the fall but they say that human beings are still made in the image of God, even after sin is a reality in the world. There still is this image that we bear. We are image bearers. And so on that point, Christians have said, all people are valuable. We value life because human, human life especially is made in the image of God. So people matter, and those who suffer, we should help, and... Uh, you know, the unborn we care about and the elderly and the sick we want to take care of. Go around the world and look at the people who build charitable hospitals and connect the dots back to their worldview. It's Christians. Because we have something in our worldview that compels us to say we should take care of these people because this is what we believe about them. And we have a reason for saying you shouldn't hurt people. You shouldn't manipulate people. You shouldn't damage people and harm them. The naturalist has no basis to tell you that you shouldn't hurt another person. The naturalist answer will say, "Well, that doesn't promote the the survival of all of us. Sort of the good of all of us. the the herd mentality. We take care of the whole group so that we can continue to survive." But you look at just nature. You look go uh go come to Kenya with us and go on a safari and I think Corey got to go on one where he watched a lion munching on a a zebra and they didn't pull up beside him and say you shouldn't do that that's not nice of you you just say that's the purpose and if you think that we're just a higher evolved species from the lion or the zebra or their monkey or whatever what how can you say that somebody shouldn't hurt another person if it helps them and promotes their own survival you can't make that judgment So that's how we define human beings. We're going to move a little bit quicker. What happens to a person at death? We believe that for each person, death is either the gate to life with God and his people or the gate to eternal separation from the only thing that will ultimately fulfill human aspirations. There's a distinction made here. And the verse that we're going to look up for this one, I could give you so many for all of these, but... Just for the sake of time, look at Hebrews 9, verse 27. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's a pretty good summary of the evangelical Christian worldview's answer to what happens to a person at death. You die once, and then you face judgment the Hindu worldview says you die and you're born and you die and you're born and you die and you're born and you go round and round and round and round and the Bible says no you die once you have a beginning and then you die and then you face the judgment and it's going to go one of two ways we have an answer for what that determination looks like for each person uh, but there's this separation made Okay. Um, let's move on why is it possible to know anything at all we would say human beings can know the world around them and God himself because God has built into them, into us, the capacity to do so and because God takes an active role in communicating with us. You can look at the world around us. We can know things about it because God has put brains in our skulls that help us to learn we just talked about that in what is a human being and there's a lot of things you can learn without knowing Jesus right a few months back Don one of our elders was not feeling well in the hospital and I would go up to visit him and he never once asked for my medical opinion did not ask for me to diagnose him or run some tests or anything I mean he knows I, I know Jesus didn't ask for that. And I don't know if his doctor and all of those nurses were believers or not, but he trusted them that they knew real things, right things. Give me this medicine, I'll get better. Don't give me that medicine, it'll make me worse. And he wasn't checking their religious affiliation card. He just trusted. They can learn things and they know things And uh, we believe that about people. We also believe that God, we can know things because God takes an active role. He takes the initiative in communicating with us. And the passage we'll look at is Psalm 19. Look at Psalm 19 real quick. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no words whose voice is not heard. This goes to the ends of the earth, where the sun comes up to where it goes down. And he's saying, psalmist is saying, David is saying, you can just look at the world and learn things about God. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1. Then he shifts in verse 7, and he starts talking not about general revelation, but about special revelation. And he says, the law of the Lord, it's perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, making wise the heart. And he's talking about how God reveals himself to us in his word. Here's what I'm going to warn you about. We're going to talk about this the next few weeks, okay? How do we know anything at all? And we believe God's given us brains and he communicates with us, does that through nature, and he especially does that through the scriptures. And I tell you where a ton of professing Christians in our society go way off track into a completely different worldview today is where they say my feelings reveal more about God than his word does. How I feel about something is going to determine what I believe to be true and right and real not what God's word says. There's a very popular blogger who is shared on Facebook all the time and people love her stuff and they her and her husband came out this week and they said you know we're all for for gay marriage and you can read their their reasonings why can i just summarize it for you we just feel like it's right it's okay and they kind of talk about the bible a little bit their their biblical arguments are just weak and lousy and what they really come back to is this is just we feel this way we've prayed about it and this is how we feel this is this is what we think god has laid on our hearts and as Christians, we say, that's not how Christians know things. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful because of sin. That's part of what we believe about human beings, right? That's part of our worldview. We can't trust ourselves always. We can trust God's Word. You go to a Christian bookstore today, I don't care which one it is, any Christian bookstore. You go to the best-selling section, and I promise you the book they have more of than any other book in there. I won't tell you what it is. You just go find it. You go to the very first page and the lady says in there, I got this because God just told it to me. I got tired of learning about God from the Bible and I just wanted to know more so I asked God to just talk to me and so he just starts, he started talking to me and I just wrote down what he told me. That doesn't fit with the historic orthodox understanding of how God reveals himself to his people. And when you do that, I'll be honest, I've read some of that book. There's nothing in it that's like super crazy or heretical. But you've opened the door to go way off into left field when you start with that. And so you've got to be grounded on this answer. How do we know anything at all? We're going to talk about that a lot uh, over the next couple of weeks. So we'll come back to that. How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we answer that question? We say ethics is transcendent and it is based on the character of God who is good, holy, and loving. Transcendent. When we say ethics is transcendent, we mean it's outside of us. There's someone outside of us. God and his character gets to speak into our lives and tell us what's right and wrong. We don't get to look back at him and say, no, this is right and wrong. He gets to make those determinations. And because it's based on his character, it doesn't change Culture to culture, year to year, it is what it is. Ethics are transcendent, they're outside of us. What is the meaning of human history? We would say human history is linear. Okay, linear. There was a beginning, now we're in the middle, and there's gonna be an end, and it's moving in that direction. It's not just some cycle that gets repeated over and over and over and over again, it's linear and is a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment of God's purposes for humanity. Our naturalist professor at the university, you say, what is the meaning of history? If he's real honest with you, he says there is absolutely none. Zero. It was just stuff, matter, and chance... And reactions and bang, and here we are, and it could have gone a million different ways, but it went this way, just completely random, no purpose, no meaning, no something out there that we're moving towards, just here we are, and they don't have any answer for that. And again, you go back to that worldview test and you say, is that intellectually satisfying? When you think about human beings and the songs that we write and the relationships that we have and the feelings that we feel and the things that we give our lives to because we think they're valuable, does it satisfy you to just say there's no purpose at all to any of it and it's not going anywhere and there's no goal out there that we're working toward? It doesn't satisfy me to say that. I don't think it passes the worldview test. It doesn't pass the biblical test. If you want to look up a passage on this, look up 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the culmination of where things are headed. Last question. What personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with our worldview? Christian theists live to seek first the kingdom of God, that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Here's the crazy thing, because all those other things, right, All the other questions, you filled in all the blanks, and you kind of say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I think that's what we believe. That's what I've always heard. I feel good about that. And you come down to this last one, and you look at our culture, a whole bunch of people in our society who say, check the box for Christian. Christian, identify as Christian. I'm a Christian. Put me down in the Christian camp. You say, how many people, based on what they say they believe, are living their life to glorify God and to enjoy God forever or how many people are living to enjoy their kids or how many people are living to enjoy money or sex or a career or prestige or retirement or any of the other Things that we place in God's place and we want to find enjoyment there. Our favorite sports team, I read an article this week that said, in the South, Jesus is the religion on Sunday and college football is the religion on Saturday. But if we believe the things that we just said we believe, then we live our lives to seek first the kingdom of God and to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So again, let me remind you of why all this stuff matters, okay? At Emmanuel, we believe in missions, and we want to go, and we want to tell people about Jesus. And the very last thing that we want to do is to go to all these places around the world and spend all this money to go and send all these missionaries, and we go and we just say, Jesus loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And they say, great, I would like that. That sounds like it would be helpful for me. And then we pray a prayer with them, and then we leave. But they still believe in all the old worldview things that they're totally off track, and they don't have a biblical worldview. Look, in our church, forget the mission field. Right here, we want to make disciples in Odessa. And those kids down the hallway at Awana, why do we pound Bible verses into them? Learn these verses. We want you to think about these verses. We want you to hide these verses in your heart. Why does Hunter spend time every week studying the Bible so that he can teach it to the youth? The purpose in all that is so that our kids grow up, and they don't just have some flimsy allegiance to Jesus and Christianity where they check a box on a survey, but they think biblically. Their worldview is biblical. You've read a thousand stories about kids From churches in the south that go to college and they lose their faith. And they quit going to church. And they walk into that biology class, right? And the professor makes fun of them and they start to question and they start to doubt. And everything they thought gets turned on its head. Do you know why that happens nine times out of ten? Maybe one times out of ten it happens because the kid just wants to chase sin and wants an excuse to do whatever they want to do. But a lot of the time it happens because churches, like ours, like all of them in this town, we just said, love Jesus, love Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing, but we haven't taught people these basic foundational worldview issues of theology and doctrine. And they go off, and one professor makes some joke about Christians, and they have nothing to stand on other than, well, I prayed a prayer when I was in eighth grade. You know, I had this experience at youth camp when I was in ninth grade. They don't have a Christian worldview underneath it. So, the next couple of weeks, what we're going to talk about next week, We're going to talk about the liberal Protestant worldview and the Catholic worldview and how they're different from what we talked about tonight. So it'll be a little bit of compare and contrast. And then we're going to talk about a worldview called moral therapeutic deism. A sociologist named Christian Smith researched and has ongoing research with teenagers in the United States. And that's what he says the worldview is of of Teenage Christians Today, Moral Therapeutic Deism. So we're going to talk about that, and then we'll talk about some other things related to worldview uh, as we wrap this study up. So I want to pray for us, that God would help us to think biblically and to have right answers to these worldview questions. God, we love you, and we're grateful for your word. And we pray that the things that we believe would be tested by Scripture and based in Scripture— And that we would not just have trite, flippant answers to to serious questions that people are asking. That we would be able to, to defend the hope that we have in Jesus. And that we would think and use our minds. You gave us minds so that we could think. Not so that we could just stare at phones and screens all day long. But so that we could think and we could reason and we could learn. And we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray that we would be a church of people who who have our feet planted on your word and the the biblical worldview that you want us to have and, and to trust in and rest on. Father, help us to be bold witnesses when we encounter people who don 't think like we think and who who have questions about what what it is that we believe. Father, we pray. Uh, for your equipping, for your spirit's guidance, and we pray all of it uh, so that you might be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.